Creative Connectors, a podcast for curious minds. My name's Vicky Keeler, and I'll be chatting to the makers and creators who aim to connect and inspire through the platform of festivals. We'll be delving into how they show up in the world, why they do what they do, their journey, inspiration, and everything in between. So sit back and enjoy the chat, because who knows where these conversations are going to go. And if this is your kind of podcast, please subscribe, follow, share with friends, and get involved and give some feedback. In today's episode, I'm going to be speaking to Luke Paulson. He was the director of Quest Festival in Vietnam and currently still works in operations. So thanks for coming on the show and having a chat, Luke. Thank you for having me. Quest Festival sadly is no more, but I reckon we begin with your journey on how an English lad ends up in Vietnam and creates the first multi-day camping festival in Vietnam. I mean, it was quite a long journey. Um, So I ended up in Southeast Asia um, purely by accident, really. Um, I'd spent my youth, uh, I'm from uh, a little village in the middle of, in between Barnsley and Sheffield called Hoyland Swain. And uh, there wasn't that much to do around there, but I had a very strong group of friends. And uh, we used to go out into the wilderness and camp nearly every weekend. Um, And that became a bit of an event. So all the kids around the village used to come together and we'd go out into the woods and we'd create kind of like small events and we'd have structures and music and things like that. And from that, going into university, getting involved in uh, university events, DJing and things like that. I uh, I developed a quite a deep love for events and festivals and enjoyed bringing people together. Um, after university, quite a few things had, had gone on in my life. And when I was around 16, I just kind of got the impression that I I needed to get out a bit and, and leave the UK and uh, expand my uh, horizons a little bit, should we say. And uh, I headed out to, to India, uh, where I, I met someone who who you've met, actually. Yes. <laughs> our, con- our connector, Kieran. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, me and Kieran met completely accidentally, actually, at an event on a beach in Goa. Um, sounds like the start of some terrible backpacker novel. Um, we started, uh, traveling together, bounced into, uh, Thailand eventually, uh, overcoming massive amounts of food poisoning, um, and (laughs) other strange and wonderful situations and having probably like what I'd say was the best time in my life, um, and bounced into Laos and then ended up in Vietnam. And when we were there... Uh, we basically had the opportunity to go on a kind of like a, a booze cruise party um, where you ended up on a little island in the middle of Along Bay and uh, you got to party there. And we decided we could either be sensible and fly home or we could spend all our money on this one trip and and that's what we ended up doing. 
Um, when we went on the trip. Best choice of your life. <laughs> yeah, literally ended up in like the last 12 years happening, I suppose, that one fateful decision. Because um, we'd have kept going round, you know, we'd have kept going through Asia. But mm. um, yeah, it just so happened on that trip, there was two tour guides leaving and they said to us, well, you should give it a go. Maybe you should be tour guides. Um, and we, we did it. One thing led to another, and we became uh, tour guides. We we lived on on the boat in Halong Bay. Um, we were teaching wakeboarding in uh, in the middle of the bay, driving speedboats around, and you get hundreds of tourists every day. Um, as a twenty one year old, it was perfect. Like as a thirty two year old, I think it'd be like hell. But like. <laughs> <laughs> But like it was, it was absolutely incredible, and it's kind of what led us to to end up staying in in Vietnam. Kieran eventually moved on, but I I kept coming back to Vietnam, uh, having Bob back home a few times. When I was home, I started doing seasonal festival work, um, and I went from uh, one point I'd I'd come home, I had absolutely no money, uh, I was sleeping on a mattress in the loft of my brother's apartment in in Barnsley, which is uh, probably the cultural capital of the north, shall we say. Like, uh, great views from up there. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I, got, I got a call saying I should get to the M6 as fast as I could. And before I knew it, I was on a ferry to the Isle of Wight Festival and I started working for, uh, for an operations team there. Um, mainly running all the the alcohol and and soft drinks actually as well, and all the all the drink and all the commission food stalls at the event, uh, and then that led on to working at Reading Festival, Leeds Festival, V Festival, a lot of commercial events. Having done that for a while, I I decided to head back to Vietnam, and as I was heading back, um, I got a, a message from a friend that I'd met on my last trip over and they said that people are planning a festival of sorts in uh, an area just outside of Hanoi, which is where I was based. And any anyone that's been to Hanoi or, or had gone to Hanoi about 10 years ago, like there was a really strict 12 o'clock curfew. The shutters would go down. People would like dive into bars and kind of still party with the music down until very early mm. on. But there was no electronic music clubs per se there was no like late night parties there was no real club scene at all mm. um and this opportunity to get involved in in djing at something like that was was fantastic so they initially asked me to to come on as a dj um because prior to that on my last on my trip um to vietnam I'd brought over like a tiny little box uh, to DJ on. It was the most, I think it was like a Hercules MK2. It literally looked like a like a shoe box. No, like a, a plastic lunch box, I think it's best described as. And and as far as we knew, that was kind of the only mixer in, in Hanoi at the time. And three of us were mixing on that and we started to realize that there was a big, interest in like electronic music of all types in Hanoi so 
got back on a plane and went to this festival and it was just it was perfect i mean i think everyone always talks about those first events being very magical and very special uh, but this one was just absolutely incredible there was it was 30 hours of music it was all local djs there was about i think uh, 150, maybe 200 people there. Everyone had been dying for a real dance and a, a proper night out for a long time. And we had a real eclectic mix of, of DJs playing. The area that it was in is this beautiful peninsula um, surrounded by this, this amazing lake that looks out over Sontin Mountain. And... Uh, it was just it's it's stunning you get the the sunrise and the, the sunset there like you can see miles around and yeah it was it was it was an incredible event so i was very lucky to have played there but it was one of those events too where no one really knew i guess we could say no one really knew their ass from their elbow when we started <laughs> <laughs> so we were just winging it uh essentially and like um you know, you were DJing, but you're also helping with the lights. Um, you know, you were trying to get people settled. If there was something to do behind the bar, you jumped behind the bar and helped out. Um, it all resulted in this amazing sunrise and everyone walking around the dance floor, uh, giving out trays of gin and tonics to, to anyone, whether they knew them or not. And just this collective energy that was very very special and very unique um mm. and it hadn't been felt in an area like that i found before you know it's, it was something very new was there a lot of internationals like or because obviously you you flew in to dj because you you had a few connections was it a lot of locals was it a mixture or primarily driven by sort of the backpackers that were in hanoi it was i mean it was mainly the I mean, I don't like the term expat, but we could say expats, um, or the, the immigrant population, should we say. Yeah, they uh, they were driving it, but there was a lot of Vietnamese who maybe they'd studied abroad or something like that. They got a taste for this kind of culture too. And then there was also some people, especially our staff, who ended up getting very involved in the festival, who were just there for work and never seen anything like that before. And uh, yeah, they right. had a they had a an interesting awakening to to the whole whole thing and their minds blown yeah <laughs> yeah I guess <laughs> um, yeah so it was a it was a mixed bag but I'd say it was mainly people that lived there if some backpackers you know would have found out about it for sure but it was mainly you had to kind of know someone word of mouth I'd say to get mm. there yeah. And yeah, that was it. I was completely hooked after the first one and was asked to get more involved in it um, from that day onwards. Yeah, nice. And like throwing back to obviously you sort of, you know, I guess opening people's minds and ears to electronic music um, in Hanoi what was that experience and it seems like everyone was obviously pretty open and eager to hear it but what was that kind of response how did that look how did that feel for you and how were people I guess re responding and reacting to this new type of music because there's not many people that would ever get to 
feel or experience that sense of genuinely like opening somebody's mind to something they've never really heard before? It was, I mean, it was really interesting. There was a few groups around, like there was the, the Karma guys who were doing a lot more live music based things. Uh, there was the Synergy Collective who kind of got me involved and they were a collective of DJs going out and doing lots of events. But our connection with the backpackers allowed us to go onto kind of the main streets and, you know, the bustling tourist quarters where you've got a lot of locals and a lot of internationals. Um, and it got us a, a lot of exposure and it meant that we could basically just just experiment and 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 see what worked and we had uh you know kieran who was very tech house orientated andy who was very dmb orientated and myself who was quite deep into disco but also a lot of harder dance music and um, it allowed us to experiment and we saw some really weird and wonderful reactions like uh i mean i got i got some really odd gigs in that initial period. So, um, I guess like there was, there was one event where we'd been called up and we used to play in like the, the top of this bar, I think it was called Amazon bar. And it was all decked out like a jungle. There was a lot of tinfoil around the DJ booth for some reason. Um, and <laughs> essentially what happened there was we, we were asked to play the, the darkest and heaviest kind of dubstep. Cause that was really coming in then. Uh, to these guys and it was just a group of dudes kind of sat around smashing Johnny Walker and we play like the most extreme set we could come up with and they just <laughs> sat there staring at us sipping and no one danced everyone was wearing suits and you know I don't know maybe they were industry types maybe they were just trying to kind of catch up with what what was coming I've got no idea but that was a weird gig um <laughs> I got I got asked to play at a place called Diamond D once and uh I mean at that time I was still very much in backpacker mode so I had a like a boozy singlet on I think it had like beer lao or something you know something I bought in Thailand <laughs> um some mucky shorts flip-flops that were barely flip-flops um and I, I kind of came down and I went to this club which I'd not been to before and they'd rolled out the red carpet and I kind of like walked in there to a, a, a very, very high class, strange club, I had video screens all over the walls, like wall to wall speakers. There was like pole dancers all over. And in the middle, there was a giant raised diamond. Um, I was asked to go in the diamond <laughs> and <laughs> play the most like intense electro. Because a lot of the guys there, like it was the Vena House sound which kind of sounds a lot like, uh, it's just like, do, 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 It's taxi driver music, basically. Call it like, <laughs> it's high energy. So I just like whipped out, so I think I was playing like Dirty Electro or something like that. Um, and then they, they moved me on after 15 minutes, pushed me out the diamond, and I had to walk around the club shaking everyone's hands, and then they gave me a, a big packet of money and sent me on my way. Um, that That was essentially like, DJing back then weird and wonderful <laughs> <laughs> the shortest job that ever existed <laughs> yeah, yeah 
15 minutes yeah. yeah i don't know why anyone would have wanted a picture of me in that state either you know it was like it was a, <laughs> but I, I, I just never really knew what i was walking into we used to dj and on the little islands in between uh, in the middle of the lake um any location could just become uh a party really uh yeah, it was it was an interesting time. It was uh, fresh, and there was a lot of interest uh, from from the Vietnamese perspective in the different types of music. And you had a lot of guys that had already been experimenting before before we came along. There's a there's a a deep underground scene in Hanoi that is extremely experimental and and really far out. Um, like in terms of bands, if you're really interested in this kind of thing, I check out Go Lim, which was a an all female punk band uh, that were big when when we got there, uh, and they were like, you know, the kind of thing that um, John Peel would just go absolutely mad for. It was visceral mm. punk, all females. The the lead singer had a skinhead, and they used to t- scream about their cats, you know, like. Amazing. Yeah. It's incredible music. Love it. Yeah. And so, like, off the back of that, did you start to see um, whether it was more internationals or more locals then trying to explore the electronic scene? Like, was it accessible for them to get equipment and then start a bit of a movement, or did that still take a bit of time? I'd say equipment probably was, and it's the biggest problem that we've got in terms of a lot of Southeast Asia places. Um, Thailand, you know, the big clubs will have CDJs and stuff like that. But when it comes to your general crowd, to get kitted out, or your your, your basic bedroom DJ, to get kitted out with that piece of kit is mm. extremely expensive. Whether you're, a, you know, a, a, an English teacher or, or you're, a, you're a local, like, to get your hands on that kind of equipment is really difficult. Um, and back then people weren't, they didn't have the money to invest, you know, you're talking places where beer is cheaper than water. Um, so to, to make that kind of money to afford that gear was very difficult. So we found people were interested, but getting our hands on gear and making venues safe too. I mean, it's still a big problem if you, I don't know anyone that's DJed and Asia, like little things like grounding the electronics isn't really a thing. So if you're not wearing the right kinds of shoes and you're playing in a club, every time you touch your gear, you get an electric shock. So, oh. <laughs> so like, that, that would be, you know, you kind of like run of the mill place. There's obviously a lot of very nice, well-equipped clubs now. Uh, but back then, yeah, you were running the risk of, of all sorts. We had uh, collective three people's collective music collection on a on a hard drive and one day we got a power surge in the club and it just fried uh all our music yeah that's the kind of you know the lights were on and off the music was in and out the speakers you know there's this there's a street in hanoi that you can go on and you can buy the function one sticker to put on your speakers you know they they they, one of the quest, yeah, yeah. One of the quest festivals we had, we were promised function one. The sound guy turned up. They t- they put up the actual speakers, 
and we were we were facing this wall of speakers and the sound was coming out but it just seemed so low and me and my mate went and just had a look and we looked around the back and all they'd done is brought the the cabs the boxes of the speakers there was nothing inside them there was no drivers or anything and they just stuck function one stickers on the front so yeah equipment quite a problem <laughs> <laughs> you never know what you're gonna get yeah um so that's obviously a bit about music scene which i think is great context for people to understand yeah i guess the space that you were playing in um quest obviously being the first multi-day camping festival uh that had both like music and art were there other festivals happening were they just like one dayers and very much around live music yeah you, you had the karma festivals in hanoi uh they were very much just focused on on live music they had some djs and stuff but they had a, a really eclectic lineup um but they also they had been around a bit longer and they managed to get support people like the american embassy and things like that mm. as a kind of like because they were known and they had this club and uh for us on the other hand no one really knew who we were and um we were doing something that you know you wouldn't have been able to do in the town we were we were doing late night parties we were doing loads of different types of music some of it was popular some of it wasn't popular yet some of it still isn't popular and <laughs> <laughs> um, so in terms of of getting attention from people that would legitimize it uh in the early stages it was quite difficult yeah right and then the collective the I guess, spearheaded quest, which you were then a part of. How many people made up that collective? Did it change and rotate? Did people drop in and drop out? Yeah, how did that How did that look for you guys? Yeah, so, I mean, initially, I wasn't necessarily, a, I was just there as a DJ. And then everyone that kind of wanted to make it happen after that first initial party got together. And everyone kind of threw their hat in and said, oh, I'm willing to do this and this. Um, nothing was departmentalized so much, but everyone just showed willingness. And I think that was key to it really getting off the starting blocks. The, the two people that kind of founded it eventually left and, uh, that led to other people having to take on a bit more responsibility, uh, myself included in the end, uh, after, you know, multiple events, we had about, it was about six, seven of us, uh, main directors. Um, but it was so interesting how different people ended up getting involved. Like one of the guys who ended up looking after camping and accommodation, uh, he ended up becoming a director after emailing us saying, look, I had the best weekend ever, but my tent collapsed on me. <laughs> I slept in a puddle. <laughs> it's like, I can make this better. <laughs> Like, I can solve this this mess. Um, and so there's a lot of that, like, people kind of looking at it with a, a critical eye and thinking, man, these guys might need a bit of a hand. Um, and, you know, we, we were that, with that kind of event, we were that kind of event where if you had something to contribute and if you understood the, if you'd been to it and you understood the mm. drive and the, the love behind the event then you could come and mock it. You know, it was, it was, anyone was able to come and, and contribute in that respect. And I think that's something that 
even comes through like everyone I've spoken to on this podcast. It's really about, yeah, if you have got feedback, make it constructive feedback and take that to a festival and work out what your contribution can be because these are all made up of people who want to create events and want to create amazing experiences. So if you can see like a really effective way of making a change, like put your hand up, get in touch and, you know, you might end up volunteering or being part of a crew. And like you say that some of those people ended up being directors. That's it. And I mean, I think when it comes to grassroots events too, everyone's a volunteer. Like Mm. I can call myself a director now. That's after, I mean, we, we did, six and a half years of festivals about nine events um we eventually had to create a structure where people reported to different people there had to be some levels of responsibility there had to be departments there had to be finance areas there had to be hr because it got so big um Mm. but you know the majority of people apart from people that you outsource like accountants and stuff like that most people are there and they're not getting anything for it and they're just purely there doing it because it it becomes infectious um and like you've spoken to to a multitude of people who who i've worked with in the past and i think everyone kind of says that same thing is it becomes a huge part of your life and it 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 turns into something that you realize is is special and unusual too it's an it's an area where people can really express themselves and express the the culture around them and the and it's a safe space too and um the desire just to keep that going is what what keeps people on so yeah in terms of quest you know like the we had so many different people in and out through the doors travelers coming in people taking on huge managerial roles but yeah, it was it was incredible because for the most part it was it was pretty much voluntary. And for anyone who did not get to go to Quest, I was very fortunate. I've been able to be there, experienced it, slept in a tent on a mat, sweating my ass off, <laughs> hearing music going all night, but literally had the best time of my life because like you said earlier, it you almost can't put into words like how beautiful the site is. It's like you're on an island, but you've just got mountains and you're in the middle of a lake. Like it's just insane. But do you want to provide a bit of context around, I guess what you were trying to achieve with the music and the art and what made Quest inherently unique and and Quest in itself? Yeah, completely. I think like one thing, if you're trying to picture it in your mind is the, the scenery was very quintessential Vietnam. It was out in the countryside to get there. You were passing, you know, like cast limestone and like multitudes of rice paddies. Um, the, the heat in, in Vietnam is, is incredible. The, the humidity is just so sometimes overbearing, but it, it can really add to the atmosphere. So if you've got, thousands of people in a field and music um and revelry it it almost feels like there's electricity just running through that humidity so that's why that site was was really incredible in terms of what we were trying to do i mean it ended up being a multi-day festival so we we, we did about three days we, we were running in the end 
by by the end of our festivals, we had 150 different acts, from punk to psychobilly to chill out, ambient, techno, psytrance, drum and bass, jungle, funk, disco, hip hop, grime, you name it. It, it was there. We we tried to do a kind of broad representation of pretty much the underground. We, we we were a focus on more underground sounds, be that from a live standpoint or or an electronic uh, and DJ one. Um, tied in really closely with everything were aspects of stage design, uh, where artists. Um, both local and from abroad would come and create absolutely incredible stages from scratch and we had you know a, a wonderful creative director who would get involved and put on we, we'd always have like uh, events there would be like a there could be like a fashion show or something in the middle of the day uh, that culminated into a massive parade um we at one point i think in the monster thing we had like one of those zombie dance-off things like where the whole crowd get involved um uh we had a lot of walk around performers one thing we were really focusing on by the by the end of it was like individual experiences um and anyone that's ever been to boomtown would know this kind of thing where it's all about grabbing a small group of people and just sending them on an absolute insane mission somewhere <laughs> so that they have a really unique experience, you know. Um, and we had performers that were so willing to do this. The, the last, you know, two extremely unique guys that just spring to mind were a, a pair of French clowns, like traditional French clowns who would walk around the event and... Uh, you know, get people and entertain them in some way, shape, or form. Um, Hopefully, in the daytime, less at night. I feel like people get freaked <laughs> out at night by clowns roaming around. Here, let me lure you into the lake. <laughs> yeah, French clowns in the middle of the night could be quite worrisome. <laughs> Things are a bit more fluoro, I'd say. So you could see them coming from a distance. You know. Yeah. And um, there was traditional dragon dancing. There was a lot of traditional Vietnamese performance. Um, and a lot of traditional instruments being used too in a musical concept. Um, a lot of acts and shows and things that happened at the festival were purely curated just for that event. So it was very much about Amazing. creating unique experiences every every year. Yeah, so music, art, performance, literally everything. And workshops, we had a multitude of, of workshops going on. Um, you know, from live drawing to trash building, upcycling, yeah, everything. Yeah, wicked. Well, for those who missed it, it was a epic festival. Um, in terms of, I guess, some of the highlights that you've had from how many years was it now that Quest ran? Ran for about six and a half years. Six and a half years. What would you say were some of the highlights? From those six years, given the wild and wacky nature of Vietnam, <laughs> it was a it was a wild beast. Um, I mean, I'll start with the kind of the the 
the ones where you're kind of staring at the whole thing and just crying a little bit <laughs> with joy you know like i think any, anyone that's ever tried to put on something like that especially somewhere so difficult and has spent a year planning it and hit god knows how many roadblocks will know those tears of absolute joy and relief when things actually come together um so highlights for me probably we had mighty mouse come and play one year um really really cool disco dj and he played a, a played very much to the crowd and this was when we were kind of only had a few stages so we were just putting everything in one space uh he played a banger of a set finished with david bowie and we thought he was gonna kind of close on that and then he just played rage against the machine killing and the name off <laughs> <laughs> for like the poor dj after him like was was struggling but people went absolutely bonkers they were like climbing up the stage and jumping off we had like one of the artists was from nepal did like this epic stage dive luckily got caught and um, <laughs> musically as well like uh one of the favorite bands that we had to come and play were called stars and rabbit uh, an indonesian band um and anyone that's heard their first album, she's got such an incredible voice. It's kind of like a Bjork-esque. Um, yep. And she closed the, the, the festival. And <laughs> it kind of really epitomizes Quest because you've got this like real epic kind of ending and she's singing it, like their most famous song and everyone's there and weeping in front of the stage and the idea was that as she kind of crescendoed someone was going to fire a flaming arrow from a from a bow and arrow into this huge structure that we'd put in the lake and covered in paraffin uh and that was you know the kind of the burning of the effigy at the end now we talked to this guy with a bow and arrow before and he was very confident that like, he'd, he'd be able to like smash this thing and it'd all go up it'd be very you know viking i guess you uh, can't do a test run I, exactly you can't, you can't do a test run um it was late um this dude so i was i was there now the lead singer was watching my hand i had my hand up and i had to put it down when it had lit and then they would move into the break and keep going. So she's holding this note absolutely perfectly, but like she's kind of looking at me like, what's going on? And I just see the arrow go like, boo, and totally miss and just go straight into the water. So then you had a bunch of guys swimming out with lighters in their mouths, just <laughs> slowly trying to, to light the effigy around it. Um, and yeah, but she managed to hold the note and we got the whole thing in it. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't exactly like we thought, you know, it wasn't very diehard, but, uh, <laughs> it, it did it. Um, she was ever the professional then just keeping that note going whilst yeah. they were swimming. Those so. guys, those guys were <laughs> incredible. Um, yeah. And I mean, in terms of like ridiculous things that we did that kind of worked out in some way i'd say that the the biggest accomplishment and the stupidest thing we ever did was probably the mystery quest and 
contrary to what we kind of thought, we've, we've been using the same land and we've been kind of developing the site. And at this point, we were still doing two festivals a year, which was, I don't know why, uh, but it was a it was a bit, a bit a lot to do. Um, and one of the local local artists, um, a wonderful guy, Dawan Kang, had told us that he, he had some land and we should go and have a look at it because he was thinking of doing a festival there. So we we came with Dao and Kang and, and he took us not too far from where Quest was uh, into the kind of wilderness and we, we went up this kind of clay embankment and over this hill and we were greeted with this valley of like beautiful jungle but in it were like three... I'd say like twenty foot high concrete penises, um, <laughs> <laughs> like he he built in there, and they were kind of like phallic. One of them had almost like a little ball sack where artists could stay, um, and they were they were sculptures. You know, they were absolutely yeah. incredible to look at. Um, huge concrete phalluses, and in a very undeveloped valley, there was no. Uh, I think we had running water from one tap, but there was no electricity or anything like that. The land was completely jungle. There was no mm. flat spaces that we could find. And we decided, after looking at it, it was so weird and wonderful and so unique, we decided to do a festival there. Um, and that just led to absolute mayhem in terms of getting ready for the event. Like... We, we had to crane truck generators into quarry trucks just to get them up the, up the hill. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. And that whole thing was just a, an, an absolute trip in itself. Uh, the quarry, one of the quarry trucks parked on a, on a tilt. So halfway through the night, we had a total blackout because the petrol had run to the side. And a, a total blackout there was absolute pitch darkness. Um just before the event there was two or three different thunderstorms which obviously caused a lot of trouble when it came to the road which we tried to grit ourselves which didn't work when it came to getting the food truck in that got stuck so then it had to go outside of the event and we had to handball all the stuff into an old lady's um like chest fridge freezer which she seemed to have 10 of for some reason so we rented those off her um, we had one guy on a crosser going back and forth, bringing frozen food into the event. Um, when people did eventually come to the event, they were put onto a bus that had all the windows blacked out, so they had no idea where they were coming. Uh, but we just had like a minor power cut, so they all got off the bus and were just treated to pitch darkness. And then a, I think like a, a good like solid 45-minute walk in the dark towards where the festival site was um someone had sponsored us with vodka so we we you know the best thing we could do at that point was just like kind of greet people with a free shot of that as they kind of slipped and rolled into the festival and <laughs> to be greeted with what was an incredible achievement because we got guys out there clearing the land, leveling the land, that we built our own stages. Um, there'd been a, a, a you know, a, we'd made a geodome in, in one of the areas. You know, we had a few professionals that helped us with the designs for that. Um, it was 
incredible. In the middle, there was like this valley with a beautiful stream running across it, and there was lemongrass growing there. And, and again, it was one of those things where I think people saw that we were just doing something completely ridiculous, and they just wanted to get involved in a creative sense. Um, yeah. One guy, I think, was he, he worked with Cirque du Soleil, uh, and he was a, a tightropeist, and he just kind of turned up, and at midnight, he climbed to the top of the giant penis and just, you know, just kind of did fire poi up there with no harness <laughs> or anything like that. And like, I'm like, deathly scared of heights too so like <laughs> i was like frozen just looking at him <laughs> like, and then he he set up like tightrope um lines across the trees and was like pinging down onto people like a spider we had oh the God. the theater crew doing like alice in wonderland walks through there um, and the whole thing actually came together at one point we got raided in the middle of the night and uh, we by by guys but they just seemed to want a couple of beers and then 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 they headed off um but it 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 was a it was an incredible feat and you know we managed to get jfb like one of the, the dmc champs to to come out we carted turntables up this slippery embankment and managed to get him to play a set there in this jungle to you know at that event you're talking maybe about 700 people that was it and yeah. it was just absolutely incredible it was a, a complete um an utter triumph i'd say well that is definitely <laughs> a triumph no one fell off the giant phallic penises in the valley everyone came out to tell clearly a very great tale so Given all these wild and crazy adventures, what have been some of your biggest learnings, whether it's about yourself or about, yeah, how to run a festival? Um, but yeah, what have been your key learnings that you have taken away and will probably stick with you for the rest of your life? And I think like a lot, a lot of these things that I'm saying now, we're talking about events that were in the past, bar like Stars and Rabbit, things like that. The event doubled in capacity nearly every time, and so did the pressure and the responsibilities involved in it. Um, I learned I learned a lot. I learned a fantastic amount uh, in such a short amount of time, and it wasn't something that I ever kind of saw myself as going into doing. You know, when when we began, it was you need to find a. To, a hole in the tapestry and fill it whether it's marketing whether it's sponsorship or something like that i was able to run from you know area to area until i found something that that fit me best which uh, which was the music direction side of it and and also operations in terms of learning experiences like it was it was a constant stream of of things that were going on there like I mean, the ending of it was probably one of the hardest things that I've ever had to to deal with, but it probably showed me more than anything else that I can kind of cope with a lot more than than I thought I could. But from a purely business perspective, like the importance of creating different departments, the, the importance of having responsibility 
and people taking responsibility for their actions and the different areas of the festival like the different uh, departments that we ended up working with the artists and people like that they put so much creative onus on themselves to just make sure that they were constantly doing the right things and the right things for the festival too they saw that the event itself was put together through a lot of love and a load of time from people who were also working full-time during it and they made sure that the the event succeeded you know, be it making sure that the, the budget wasn't entirely smashed, be it making sure that other people were working well during the festival and that, you know, taking care of people who come in as volunteers or something like that, because we had a, a huge voluntary base, you know, by the end, I think there was about 500, 600 volunteers. Because yeah. as, uh, as it progressed, we started off with 150 people and we, we ended up with about 5,000, 6,000 near the end. So within six years, like the, the learning curve was steep. Um, doing things like Mystery Quest, you know, back then it seemed like it, a good idea. You know, it's just something to do. It's, a, it's a, like, oh, like that's not been done before. Shall we do it? Um, you know, you're just doing things because they're, they're fun and you, and you want to do them. And if people want to come to that, fair enough. But for the most part, a lot of people were just doing it to creatively express themselves. The thing with Quest was it, it became a lot bigger than that because it became a, a way to, to culturally express as well. You had a lot of people getting involved, especially nearing the end of Quest, who kind of looked at it for a while and thought, yeah, maybe this is like something that, that that's important that we can use to really express ourselves in. So we had a lot of artisans and people like that bringing their own work. We had a lot of staff that were incredibly involved in the in the Vietnamese art scene and, and wanted to show that to a wider audience. Again, that kind of amazing thing that that it just became was it just this like this open door for people to come in and and put forward what they wanted so in terms of i mean life lessons it it was the, the most difficult thing that i ever had to do because I, I in terms of work because i had to dedicate my life to it for six and a half years even now like post festival and I wonder how many people have kind of experienced this too, but once you lose something like that and once it's gone, it's such a massive part of your life. It's like a relationship. You're like yeah. constantly kind of bringing it up or discussing it with people sometimes. And you have to kind of check yourself and be like, oh, I can't talk about that anymore. <laughs> but, <laughs> you can talk about it as much as you like here. Safe space. <laughs> but, but the wonderful thing is, is it's not, just you who experienced that feeling who experienced that relationship it was everyone that went there and that enjoyed it and you know i'm hoping everyone that performed it too that felt the energy and kind of felt what it was that you know this big initially just this this crazy idea that just developed into into a full-blown event was and it you know i mean for me was it if I was to to go back in time and ever do it again? I think I'd just probably keep it 
about 3,000 people and never, ever, ever go higher than that. <laughs> because, like, uh, running large events when you're when you're the top of the chain is, can be, you know, it can be terrifying. And there's a lot of responsibility there. Um, something like Quest, especially because no one was, like, necessarily checking up on us to make sure that we were doing things the industry standard way so we had to constantly check ourselves to make sure we created a field hospital on site and flew people over from france that were trained in emergency medicine because in the past we would looked at kind of medical care and realized that people didn't really have the understanding because this event was totally new you know people needed training and and things like that we were looking at like sound crews and having to you know get them to teach them a, 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 like kind of what to do like i mean one sound guy uh we use who we never used again you know at one point he turned up the guy with the speakers with nothing in the back with of the them <laughs> yeah like one one time like uh, i think it was one of our headline acts was coming on and the sound was terrible so i went to the sound desk and he's there with two ladies of the night um, that, that he'd picked up in a in the local village. And, like, uh, he, he's asleep and he's drunk. <laughs> and, you know, that kind of professionalism. Luckily, at that point, someone had just arrived from Da Nang who wanted to check the festival out. And they just jumped on the sound desk and and did the whole thing. Um, and And that kind of you know, understanding, we we were forming into kind of the perfect event where all these different people that were working in the music and art scene realised that they could come in and get involved and help mm. in some way. Um, and, yeah, just feel like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's really hard to kind of pinpoint anything in terms of learning, but I think taking it, taking it slow trying not to get too ahead of yourself even though there's a massive need for growth um within within some areas of culture like it doesn't mean that you you have to bow to that you know um and keeping things small and intimate can be fantastic uh but also like it limits you because then you might become niche and then you might become cliquey and then you might become exclusive and that's not very festival-esque, is it? So yeah, yeah. I I find like it, it was a huge a, a huge step. I mean, I I learned everything in terms of from a, a accounting to um, management, uh, just growing something from a, a grassroots event into into what it was was a a huge trip within itself. A massive learning experience. And and especially in a foreign country where I'm assuming you don't speak the language, but you've probably got maybe some basics down. But yeah, like how was that? I guess that's probably a whole extra layer of challenges in terms of, like you say, you don't necessarily have the the same rules and regulations. You're having to check yourself. You've probably got, you know, language barriers when you might be dealing with suppliers. So that's a whole another level I guess when it comes to the festival um what was the biggest I guess yeah challenge or 
thing that you had to overcome when it came to like the logistics and stuff like that? Well, props to them. Actually, I was probably the worst Vietnamese speaker in the team. But I, like <laughs> we, we had two people that were that were pretty much fluent. Um I I can understand I can I can talk to, to a moderate level, but um those barriers I'd say eventually the ones that can can cause the most harm and that can cause a lot of confusion um because when you're when you're trying to put forward a concept that's entirely new even if you do it in the correct language using the correct words the correct tenses and you know contextualizing it in the right way it doesn't matter because there's still going to be a lot of confusion as to what it is and what the point in it is when it's not ever happened before. So not only did we have a language barrier, we also had this kind of, but why, you know, why are you doing that? And there's so many whys when it comes to festivals. It's like, well, we need this big area here so that we can, you know, make a bouncy castle or something like that and someone's like you know but why why would you do that well it's it's going to be fun you know why why do you need a huge area for chill out we could put loads of bars there we could put loads of you know there is a a massive gap in in those respects of kind of explaining things on an aesthetic level could be quite difficult but our um our director was vietnamese and you know, she felt the the soul of the festival as much as anyone else. So we were lucky in those respects that sometimes when it came to the stranger things that we wanted to do and, you know, explaining like how it's going to look, as long as we could show drawings and kind of help her visualize it, it was a bit easier for her to explain. But then she also still, even though, you know, it's a native tongue, still had the problem of trying to explain all these weird and wonderful concepts to to people that have never heard them before. Mm. And just so people understand, like, was there an owner of the land? Did you lease that land? Like, how did that work in terms of, yeah, where where QuestFest was actually hosted? So it was actually in a a pretty tricky place. So it's on the edge of a national park. Um, The land was leased by... uh, a group of people who used it for team building exercises. But in between the leased land and the public land, the main road, there was a a cultural village, uh, which was kind of like a, kind of like a heritage resort, I guess you'd say. So the government had built it with lots of different um, aspects of Vietnamese culture and things like that there. Um, There was lots of different long houses and, uh, it, it wasn't widely used, but it was all government land and it was toll gates uh, that became built actually further into the festival's life. So that became a very tricky thing to deal with because every time we needed to access the festival land, we had to go through government land and pay a certain fee. Mm. Obviously, Quest Fest is no more. And I know it's a very sad and tricky subject for you to talk about, but 
what you do feel comfortable saying. Do you want to maybe share, I guess, and explain, yeah, why their festival did end? Because it obviously meant so much to you and, you know, everybody who played a huge part in making that happen for so many years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's certainly a tricky subject because I, I'm currently not based in Vietnam. I would like to go back to Vietnam. <laughs> I've got people I consider family in Vietnam um, and there's some elements at play that obviously we can and can't discuss openly because it you know it, it's sensitive material or it's related to government or something like that but in terms of what 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 went on it it actually all stemmed from a, an earlier event that had nothing to do with us uh, there was a event at a water park in the middle of Vietnam in October and that event was extremely badly managed um, as far as reported and during that event there was multiple deaths um, of locals and young people. It was the hottest day of the year, it was a big EDM event um, it was over capacity. There wasn't any water. Um, strange because like similar kind of situations have, have happened in, I think in Malaysia, a similar kind of thing happened. There was like a huge scale event and, uh, all these people died. Now, uh, the event, uh, got shut down and then the government said that every single event in the whole country would then be, closed and so they issued right. uh, a ban on everything countrywide any kind of event too so this was in september our festival was due in november we then approached them and said well look we've got your uh, official okay here we've got our license we've booked all the acts um you know the the cost of quest is phenomenal in terms of build and and things like that and at this stage too i think we'd even started building in september for november you know sm small things were getting constructed uh things were getting made so we asked them what we could do in order to obtain our license and we kept getting told to do different things to jump through different hoops and in the end it it ended with us uh having to do a huge event safety plan which we're happy to do again industry standard yeah. um and we did all our protocols and we submitted everything and we jumped through every single hoop that was put in front of us and we were told uh we're good to go the festival uh got underway in terms of on-site construction i think about a month before um so we were building 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 every day moving through uh the government land to to build the event uh and eventually we would you know we were still being very very wary that things were were, were touchy um, yeah. With regards to events, we were constantly um, we, we we were having to 
potentially do things like remove all the DJs from the lineup because it was electronic music that had um, that had caused the issues at this other event, they were saying. So we were very mindful of having to do that. There was a lot of last-minute changes that we started to having to make. Um, but all in all, we were, we were told things were, were good to go up until the night before the festival. And the night before the festival, uh, a guy came down from the cultural village, which is the area in between the public land and the, and the, the lease land. And they served us with a notice saying that this event is not allowed to go ahead. And at that point, the entire event was built. Um, and they closed the boom gates and things like our security, um, our food trucks uh, were turned away. Food began to spoil. Uh, so all our vendors were, were losing all their stock. Um, yeah, and, and we were just kind of put on hold until the morning. Now, this all sounds like extremely dramatic, and it was worrying at the time. But in the past, these goalposts have been moved multiple times. Like mm. this, this was a, a common occurrence of kind of putting the wind up you in the evening and then in the morning. But it had never got this extreme, and we were extremely concerned. And then there's also the thing of in 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 Vietnam too. Business cannot be done in the evening. So once you're served with this notice, even though it's something so serious, you can't get hold of an official or anyone to talk to right. until about 8, 9 a.m. in the morning. So we have to hightail it then, or one of us had to hightail it into Hanoi and begin negotiations there. Um, and again, like things were, were very, very positive uh, to the point of thinking things were going ahead buses started to arrive i think 1500 people turned up on site the gate was closed things were looking good and then all of a sudden the just decision came in and it was just a, a flat no um you know the fact that all these meetings were going ahead and all this was going on just kind of shows you that there was no indication that this was was a no. There was no, we, mm. you know, there'd, there'd be multiple things said, but then we got assurances that it would go ahead, um, and assurances from from as far as we were aware, the the highest level. So the whole thing kind of came crashing down, and um, we had to negotiate getting all these people because by the time negotiations had finished it was the evening it was dark um we'd been running as much water and the only thing we had on site was beer so we just opened up the beer taps for free beer for everyone on site too because they'd also cut our electricity um so we were really struggling actually on site there was 850 people working on site at the time so we were trying to negotiate getting food in for people and things like that. And by the time the evening came, we managed to get all the people that were left outside 
either into taxis back into town or we managed to get them onto buses uh, into the actual festival itself. And yeah, it was it was really it was really hectic. There we were called to a meeting uh, in the cultural village with with a lot of the the top brass were there. And after kind of going over our paperwork and going over someone else's paperwork, they just kind of looked and just said, "Well, you know, better look next time. We can see why you." You know why? You, why you want to do this? Why you think you can do this? Yeah. They're like, but we're gonna we're gonna say no to this. Um, Did your heart just sink? We almost <laughs> like I can't believe this. I can't process it. Like by that by that point, I it was over. We'd lost a day of the festival, so continuing would have been almost impossible anyway. And mm. if they'd have let it go ahead, it would have been chaos because from an organizational perspective to get everything back and flowing would have been impossible you already had like you know vendors had lost their a day's worth of profits um we'd have to get the security back again under assurances things were going to go ahead you got to rearrange with the buses the whole thing would have been pretty much impossible to go ahead so and i i had the you know british embassy on the phone they were just telling me to make sure all the british citizens were all right that was the main mm. thing but i think i'd already processed it and like in terms of like how i reacted i'd just gone i was numb i was in total work mode i just needed to make sure that i could do whatever i could to 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 mitigate circumstances as much as possible like we had like a 150 acts you know um how can i get these people interna international and local right who were yeah. already billed to play the festival international and local you had people like the atx6 which is a kind of like charity foundation that had like sent over six up-and-coming acts from texas it'd been announced by the mayor of texas you know that they're coming over oh to vietnam God. for a show <laughs> And, like, you know, they're making a documentary on the whole thing, too. And that's just one of 150. So it was my job then to kind of not sleep and figure out what what can I do. And this is where Hanoi as a community and as a music scene, in terms of venues, in terms of artists, and in terms of everyone involved, old and new, that, that kind of gets stuck in there, the, the level of organization and just general coming together was incredible. You had thousands of people stuck in the town that had come for this festival and they just opened up their doors. We had, you know, it was just a, like, I had an amazing team with me who just kept going through to the, the very bloody end, like when they could have just bounced. And uh, they just, we, we managed to get about 80% of the acts to play in the actual city itself, which I believe caused a bit of chaos <laughs> in terms of, like, all of a sudden the hotels were very full. Uh, <laughs> and it was just an absolute coming together of, you know, shit, we need to make it happen. Or we need to, like, 
get whatever we can from the fire and create something out of this mess. And we had that. And then we also had people literally come into the festival gates, walking two hours through the jungle. Oh my God. Just to come into the festival site to kind of witness it. And I mean, after we'd managed to arrange what we could for all the acts that we could, that for me was probably one of the strangest things that I've ever had to do was walk through the entire festival site and just look at this entire beautiful thing that had been built but would never really be seen. Like, mm. incredible stages. <laughs> There's a video of this. Like, I walked with the guys from Texas and I walked them to this, this fantastic stage that my friend Ludd built that was built like an anglerfish. Well, it's where the, the, the late night DJs were going to play. And it looked out onto the lake and there was a chair on its own. And uh, this guy just looks and he says, well, I guess I kind of want to play in Vietnam. So do you mind if I play a song? And he, he sat there with this beautiful backdrop and just played a, a fantastic song. And after he'd finished playing, this girl just kind of appeared she'd been sleeping on a platform i don't know how she got in she was a, she, she was a punter and she just kind of came up and she like said wow that was amazing she was like i'm what did she say i'm 19 i'm from like this tiny town in canada and there's like no one that lives there isn't this like the best festival ever <laughs> I, was, I was just like absolutely blown away like well you know, at least someone's had a good time. But, like, she's th she then sat down and proceeded to sing a beautiful song herself. And then I, I, sat, I sat with Lud, and he said to me something that will always stick with me. And it, he said that playing... <laughs> he said that you, you've managed to... You know, you've, you've got this far, and no one, unless they've ever done it, understands how tricky it is to do things like this in a place like this with the red tape that you've got to deal with and he says it's like playing chess on a roller coaster <laughs> 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 and i'd say like for me that kind of really epitomizes the six and a half years that i had doing that event it was an absolute roller coaster and there was a lot of chess but it was a uh, it was a good ride. It was a a worthwhile ride, I'd say. Clearly, you know, like you say, it was your life for six years and I can hear and obviously see the emotion, you know, recalling back to that. And it wasn't just you, it was a whole team of people and that was their lives as well. I would just like to say thank you for creating the magic that you did at Quest because I was blessed enough to experience it and... It may have only been six years, which is actually still a really long time, but that's six years of making amazing experiences for people as much as it was a wild roller coaster of chess for you. It was a wild, great time for all those people. So 
just a like a thank you and a pat on the back because it was obviously no mean feat and a really challenging but great thing that you created and yeah you'll have impacted so many people beyond what you'll ever realize you know the the Canadian girl had it had it down to a T in terms of what you'd created she summed it up great on that on that uh final night um is there anything that you would like to share um maybe to close out our conversation or any any shout outs to individuals or anything like that that you would like to share that you've not already spoken about yeah i mean there's i'm not crying i'm just making a lasagna cutting onions (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) there's too many people to name and i don't want to miss anyone out but I think there's a lot of people that could have come on and said a lot more in, in better ways than, than possibly I can about this. But I want to say that I'm a, I'm a very small part in a big, big machine that worked so well for so long. And in the hardest of circumstances, in the, in the strangest of circumstances at times, you know, for anyone that climbed on top of a stage during the monsoon for anyone that you know for any volunteer for anyone who just came and walked through that gate and kind of understood what it is and what we were trying to do and for anyone that collaborated and and got involved in it (laughs) lasagna (laughs) 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 just thanks and keep going because that was the best it was the best time of my life um and it was for me one of the most important things i've ever done um creatively and yeah it's it just purely incredible human beings like and i hope anyone that is listening to this they hear that and they know that i know them and that yeah cheers very well said and you are one of those individuals so I'm sure all of those have the exact same message right back to you um and you know you might not be there and you might not be creating quest but the you've still got many many years in you yes is there anything that is in the pipe in the future vision a future goal or something that you just want to put out there to the universe. Ooh, yeah. Well, I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm still a strapping young lad. I hope. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Can confirm. Uh, <laughs> Can confirm. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm currently working with Jai Tech Festival, who mm-hmm. are an incredible event in the north of Thailand. You've already spoken with. Matt and Holland, Holland who also worked on Quest, Matt who also worked on Quest, JITEP were actually a kind of a sister festival to Quest, uh, so if you like Quest, you'll love JITEP. Well, I'll be there when I can, when I can travel, I'll definitely be there. Yeah, so I'll, I'll be helping out with those guys, and again, an incredibly wonderful conscious event full of fantastic humans. Who, again, you know, they went through the whole collapse of Quest, but did they stop? No, they've kept going. 
Um, yeah. And I think that's the point. You have got to keep going. Um, you know, if we all fell at the first hurdle, then nothing would happen, especially in entertainment. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, exactly. People got to kick back after last year, right? Yeah, that's right. More yeah. so than ever. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. If anyone's having a hard time with things like that, you know, COVID's been an absolute sucker for everyone, but support your event scene um, because mm. there's been a lot of struggling professionals. And uh, when things do go back to the normal or the new normal, um, chuck a bit of money if you can afford, go to a couple of gigs, get some events because it'll help. Amazing. Well, once again, thank you for taking many music genres to Hanoi and creating and sharing many wild stories and adventures, which I'm not sure if anyone can actually top them on this podcast, but <laughs> you've definitely got some of the wackiest ones uh, today, that's for sure. And yeah, thank you for sharing your story and sharing your journey because I know it's been a big one. And it is very greatly appreciated for you, yeah, opening your heart and um, sharing your insights and perspective and journey from Quest Festival. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Very therapeutic. <laughs> oh, great. Glad it could be of therapy. <laughs> Amazing. Well, that is a wrap. Cheers. for tuning into creative connectors hopefully you enjoyed the chat if so please subscribe share with friends support the community and tune into the next one